0: This is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, this is Ben. This is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers, my podcast. Thanks for joining me. Nice to have you along. It's a bit late today. I'm sorry. It's Wednesday. So those of you who have been eagerly awaiting this episode uh, all morning, I've been uh, somewhat hindered by a few unforeseen circumstances. I just got back from a little holiday last night. Uh, Yes, I did have a very nice time. Thank you. And uh, got back to my flat to discover that I'd been locked out of it by um, something of a mix up with a trades person. And so um, there I was unable to get into my own home so i couldn 't come back last night and uh, record the intro as I was planning to do and that would have put the podcast out early this morning as is normal and so here I am on Wednesday morning much later, uh, finally having gained access to my own flat and finally sitting in front of you um, or in front of my microphone at least recording this intro for episode one seven two I did try and record it earlier but I was using my smartphone on which to do that because obviously it didn't have access to my usual rig and um, I just couldn't live with the uh, popping which is what would have happened on the word popping if I was using the phone, that plosive sound. And um, given that my guest is Peter Fraser... Um, this week, the esteemed British photographer that caused problems because uh, Peter begins with a P, and you get a lot of popping. So, anyway, point being, uh, here we are, Wednesday morning, eleven forty, and uh, recording the intro so that I can finally get the podcast out. And I will introduce Peter in a minute once I've done a little bit of housekeeping. So, the first thing, of course, is to tell you who this episode is sponsored by: the good old Charcoal Book Club. Monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts it brings essential, limited edition, and hard to find photo books to your doorstep. Working and you know what? The other thing is, you remember probably last time that I said they were digging up my road, or well, that might have been just the subscribers who got that information because I think I recorded that last week on the members only uh intro. But um, they're laying uh high speed fiber broadband or whatever you want to call it, and um so there's a lot of noise outside went on holiday leaving the noise behind which was delightful as you can imagine but now i've come back to the same old digging so if you can hear digging in the background it's been one of those mornings folks i'm just glad to be in the flat to be honest you know what i mean so anyway where was i charcoal bot club yeah essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors whether they be long time enthusiasts with a stock library or novices just beginning to build their collection. So join up as a member at charcoalbookclub.com and each month you'll receive a new museum quality first edition monograph to add to your shelves, handpicked by Charcoal's team of expert curators and signed by the artist along with a signed note card and an exclusive print. Sometimes the book of the month will be a classic title every bibliophile should own sometimes it will be a new release from an emerging artist who's poised to make Big Waves they offer free shipping to the UK, Canada and the US, and members also get exclusive perks such as signed copies, access to rare titles, members only pricing in Charcoal's online bookstore and more, all of which makes the Charcoal Book Club the best, easiest and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography. Looking forward to the Chico Portfolio Review, which is happening in Montana next month. Don't want to jinx it, don't want to say too much about it, you know what it's been like trying to travel the last couple of years, but... Suffice to say, I'm supposed to be going. I hope to be going. I'm massively looking forward to going, but I'm not uh, counting any chickens until I'm literally sitting in a hot spring up to my neck in warm water with uh, a gin and tonic. Uh, well, maybe a martini. I don't know. I will decide on the drink at the time. The point is, I'll be there. And I'm not counting any chickens until that happens. You can sign up as a member of this podcast and support its ongoing production at pod.fan. £5 a month will get you exclusive, special, subscriber-only content every other week on the weeks so that this episode doesn't go out. Thank you to the members who have signed up. I very much need more members in order to make this sustainable. So um, that will require me to build my audience to some extent, and hopefully then a percentage of that audience will feel that it's worth five quid a month, two cups of coffee a month to get access to the special exclusive content. And in doing so, you will basically be supporting the ongoing production of this podcast, as I say. So you can do that at pod.fan. You can also have me build you a Squarespace website so that you don't have to go through the pain in the butt and the hassle of figuring out how to do that yourself. Let me know if that's interesting to you at ben at bensmithphoto.com. So what else as the digging continues? I don't know how loud it's going to be when you actually hear this, but I don't know. Let's see if we can get through the intro for Peter Fraser, who is my guest this week. Born in 1953 in Cardiff in Wales, Peter acquired his first camera at the age of seven and after a full start studying civil engineering at 18, began studying photography at Manchester Polytechnic the following year. In the summer of 1974, he lived in New York and worked at the Laurel Photography Bookstore at 32nd Street and 6th Avenue, which significantly expanded his sense of photography's expressive possibilities. He graduated in 1976 after repeating his third year due to major illness, crossing the Sahara while photographing in West Africa, which is an experience that he talks about in our chat, and I asked him about specially. It's a very interesting little story. Peter lived in Holland and Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire before moving back to Manchester in 1981. He then began working with a plowable Machina camera in 1982, which led to an exhibition with William Edelston at the Arnolfini in Bristol in 1984, and a move to that city. In summer 1984, Peter travelled to Memphis, USA, to spend nearly two months with William Edelston, which confirmed for him the desire to commit his life to working with colour photography. He then worked on several series of photographs leading to a first publication, Two Blue Buckets, which won the Bill Brandt Prize in London, the precursor of the Citibank International Photography Prize in 1988. He moved to London in 1990, subsequently publishing several new bodies of work, including Ice and Water, Deep Blue, Material and Peter Fraser. And in 2002, the Photographer's Gallery in London staged a 20-year survey exhibition of Peter's work. He was shortlisted for the Citigroup International Photography Prize in 2004. In 2006, he was invited to be an artist in residence at Oxford University in England and produced new work for the permanent installation in their new biochemistry building in 2008. In 2009, Peter was given a major commission by the photographer... I always always get tucked up by that Welsh spelling. The Photo Gallery Wales spell F-F-O-T-O, to return to his country of birth to make new work for a solo exhibition at the gallery, which opened in March 2010, and with a new publication, Lost for Words. In 2008, Peter began working on A City in the Mind, a new series of photographs in London, which was shown at Brancolini Grimaldi Gallery in London in May 2012, accompanied by a Steidl publication. From January to May 2013, Tate St. Ives held a retrospective of Peter's career, the first Tate retrospective for a living British photographer working in colour, and Tate published a major monograph on the whole of Peter's career with a text by David Chandler. They also purchased 10 works for their permanent collection from the Two Blue Bucket series in 2014. And also in 2014, Peter was awarded an honorary fellowship by the Royal Photographic Society in the UK. In spring 2017, Pepperoni Books in Berlin published a new director's cut of Peter's 1988 publication Two Blue Buckets, with 19 missing images from the original and a new essay by Jerry Badger, and a discussion between Peter and David Campany. In 2017, Peter's exhibition of mathematics was exhibited at La Real Jardin de Botanico in Madrid, part of Photo España 17, and Skinner Books Italy published mathematics, which was 52 colour plates and essays by Mark Durden, David Campy and an afterword by Peter. The first UK exhibition of mathematics opened at Camden Arts Centre London on the 5th of July and ran to the 16th of September 2018. The accompanying file note numbered 120 published by the gallery featured a specially commissioned essay The Things That Count by Amy Sherlock, Deputy Editor of Freeze. And in March 21, Peter received the Pollock Krasner Foundation Award to support the production of new work in the UK and across Europe in the time of COVID-19, paying subtle attention to atmosphere and nuance, quietly reflecting on manifestations of our responses to the enormous changes taking place across the human landscape. And that, of course, is work that will be ongoing and something that we, I think, started the conversation talking about. Uh, I was really delightful to sit opposite Peter in his flat uh, and do it, one-to-one face-to-face as opposed to online uh, or remotely as I have been of course doing during the whole COVID thing it's lovely to be able to go back to that in fact actually Peter did get COVID some time after that thank God it wasn't me who gave it to him I would have felt absolutely awful but um, we'd both done a PCR test the morning of the chat just to make sure we were both uh, negative and uh, yeah it wasn't until um, I think a week or so later that uh, he got COVID hope you are feeling better Peter And um, I really enjoyed having this chat, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. Why don't we start, you know, with the kind of present day in a way, and then maybe we can, you know, reel back uh, to some extent, because I wanted to ask you about this award that you won, the Pollock Krasner Mm -hmm. um, Foundation Award. That was intended to sort of fund some new work. That's right. And was it, Well, tell me about it, I guess, is the obvious way to ask you. Yeah,
1: okay. Well, I guess uh, if we go back to summer 2020, um, I was invited by the director of the Pollock Krasner Foundation in New York to submit an application for funding for new work. And what was really important about being invited was that. For 35 years, ever since um, Jackson Pollock's uh, widow Lee Krasner set up the foundation in 85, painters and sculptors, video artists have all been at liberty to apply at will to the foundation for funds. Only photographers had to be invited. Oh, really? And so I was very pleased indeed to be invited to submit an application, which was a really arduous affair. It took took eight solid days of preparation. Fantastic amounts of information they wanted, um, financial as well as other kinds of information, and um, and formal, quite formal written proposals of different types. Um, and anyway, um, a year, nine was it nine months? Nine months later. It, They generally say it takes up to a year for you to hear. Mm. I heard that I'd been awarded um, a a major award by the foundation uh, for the project I'd asked for money for, which was challenging for me, and I'm still working on it. But in principle and in essence, I asked for money to make work in the UK and right across Europe in the time of covid paying attention to the subtle nuances of our responses to the experience of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And what I've realised in having begun that work, of course, uh, I went to Portugal, Porto in Portugal, last summer, last June, and then in July and August, um, my wife's mother became ill and then died uh, in July. July and August were completely taken out by that sad event, her mm. illness and subsequent death and the funeral. Then in September, I drove from London to Germany um, and photographed in uh, places like Cologne, Hamburg, uh, Dresden, Leipzig, mm. and uh, and then back over uh, to Normandy, made some pictures in Normandy, mm. where we've got friends. Um, so... Uh I understand that I'm the sixth or the seventh photographer in 35 years to receive an award from the foundation, wow. which feels, you know, it feels a bit special.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, mo- most of the sort of awards that photographers get are specifically for photographers, you know, they're, exactly. they're de- dedicated prizes. Right. But you've, you've yeah, you've, you've competed with people, you know, other disciplines. But no. it's strange, like a weird double standard that only photographers have to be invited i don't know there's a kind of i suppose it kind of seems to me like it, it's almost a reflection of that slight sort of um uh, sort of inferiority complex that some photographers have in terms of the way that photography is um is viewed in the art world as a sort of slightly you know somehow an inferior um, um medium
1: i think probably we'll get into this a little bit later and maybe in a bit more detail but the historical relationship between photography and the art world is a recurring theme Um, Not only, I suspect, in your interviews, but, um, you know, within the culture of any particular uh, country Mm. at large Mm. and in general.
0: Yeah. But to go back to to your actual project, um, what's interesting to me is the question of whether you think carefully about what you're going to try and photograph going into such a big challenge, um, or are you... Are you much more kind of organic than that, that you kind of go out to the to, to wherever you've decided to visit and see what comes along kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I, I, I tend to work, um, I suppose over the years, the way I put it is that I, I develop an umbrella concept that's thought through from a conceptual position. And then I utilize the freedom that that gives me to work entirely intuitively underneath that umbrella and so i never know what images i'm going to make when i go out with the camera and i go out with the camera to work so i go specifically to work it's extremely rare that i'll make be making pictures in a sort of um you know during a social event Mm, for example mm. that's not how i really work particularly Mm, yeah um, it's for me. Work is work, and photographing is work. It's serious work.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the way in which you work is, as you say, it means fundamentally there's a kind of conceptual underpinning to Have you kind of looked at some of the other uh, responses that photographers have made to the COVID thing? Because obviously, it's it's something that that other people have explored. Have you seen other stuff that you know was of interest to you?
1: I haven't seen other stuff that's of interest to me, and. On one level, I don't really expect to at this stage. Um, my sense is that you know the the worldwide pandemic for for a lot of artists is a is an easy trigger to make work and make it quickly and to get it out quickly, either in publication form or in uh, exhibition form. If they're lucky enough to be able to you know bring that off uh, very quickly but my my reservation about wanting to do anything quickly here is that i really think that something as profound as this that we're all going through needs some distance for us to be able to be able to say something in general meaningful about it mm. now not all artists will fall foul of that principle and very gifted artists and by that i mean photographers too uh, might very well be able to say something interesting and profound quite quickly. But I think that would be a very rare event. Mm, mm. And the knee-jerk reaction, might, I mean, to the pandemic, for many people, I suspect it's almost seen as a golden opportunity to get work out on, on a profound topic that will almost guarantee wide audience, um, one might imagine. Simply because of the universal nature of what we're all going through. Yeah, yeah. But there are huge dangers there for making work. I think that's actually not going to withstand the test of time.
0: Of course, yeah. So you're going to continue to work, and it feels like you might, you know, have the in, the entire trajectory in the sense that the optimistic reading might be that we're coming to some sort of end game with this with the with this pandemic. Um, I don't know. It depends, I suppose, how you know where one stands. In terms of their optimism about it but it feels like you might be able to track the entire kind of th- process to a point where you know it's going to become endemic not epidemic and that it will just sort of blend into the background of our lives i think this seems to be that's the kind of general mm. uh prediction as far as some of you know the, the expert
1: opinions go yeah i i think that i found out a very um plausible analysis of the, s- the situation and its potential trajectory. Um, I asked uh, the Pollock Krasner Foundation for money for two years. I said I needed at least two years to work on this. They only give money for a, for a year, um, which is still an, you know an incredibly helpful amount. Um, but I won't have finished by next April when they contact me and say, "What have you done with the money?" Mm. Uh, I will I'll be able to tell them what I've done with the money so far. But my sense is, you know. Many of the projects I've worked on over the last um, 40 years have taken between two and five years.
2: Mm.
1: Several have taken five years. And I don't think that even if we recognize that this has become endemic and that we have to live with it in lots of different ways and with accommodations, my feeling is we're never, ever going to go back to life as it was, literally and precisely I think there are fundamental changes taking place in the way that people think about being with other people, about the way people feel about what they've discovered in spending a lot of time alone, Um, and uh, in in really interesting ways about what is important and what isn't so important that we might have thought was. And these can be, and I think, are almost inevitably extraordinarily subtle things Mm. and therefore by implication are going to need time to assess and analyze and think about and reflect on
0: yeah absolutely yeah Uh, so
1: so really to answer your question or or to elaborate uh my answer i mean i i i could do with three to five years working on this (laughs) yeah yeah and i think the work will keep developing and growing Mm. as a consequence and of course i would only hope that at the end of this process um as with past bodies of work i w- i would hope to have something that i feel you know very good about sharing with uh, a public audience mm.
0: it's funny because i mean you don't really think of yourself well, i think it's fair to say you don't think of yourself as a documentary photographer you are an artist and and um most of the things the projects that you've done you know they've been quite abstract in nature this is this is a bit different in a way because you're dealing with something very uh, tangible, this, this, this pandemic. But, it, you know, you're going to explore it in your own uh, style, I suppose. But I, I read, I think, something about, you know, your interest being really in poetic truth rather than documentary truth. I, th- I thought that was quite a nice kind of way to put it or a, a nice hmm. little phrase. How do you think about that? Uh, that
1: I, I'll give you a pretty good example. I used to live in a place called Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire, um, which has become quite famous now. But, uh, I mean, I moved there when I, I used to live in Holland before that. So I graduated in 1976 from Manchester Poly, moved immediately to Holland, where I lived for about two and a half years, and then came back to the UK, bought a house with my wife at the time, my first wife, um, for cash in Hebden Bridge. It was like four and a half grand, <laughs> two up, two down. And um, while I I lived there, I lived there for about two years um, before I moved back into Manchester. Ted Hughes was giving, was alive and, of course, was from the area, was giving a live recital himself in a local chapel. And I didn't really know much about poetry, but I knew some people in Hebden Bridge who very much knew about poetry and said, come along, this is important. And so I did go along. And... uh, it, was an ex- it really was an extraordinary experience. And at one point, Ted Hughes was talking about... Well, he was reciting one of his poems. And in this poem, he spoke about how early one morning the cockerels in the town were flying high into the sky against the rising sun. And it was a really important um, part of an incredible poem. It moved me profoundly, and what's so fantastic what was so fantastic for me to hear him sp- speak about um, this poem in that way was that it was clearly impossible that cockerels in any documentary sense or what we might call everyday sense were flying high up into the sky against this, the rising sun, but the poetic truth was absolutely precise perfect and relevant and the discrepancy between what we might expect if we'd stood where he was when he was imagining that and what he was seeing in his own mind as a poet is a very interesting distance and it's a distance that um, documentary photography would find very hard to cover Mm -hmm. Because documentary photography has a different role and a different purpose and a different focus. But I feel fairly confident in saying that one of the things that's bedeviled my career is that right from the beginning, I was trying to, if you like, interpret the world Mm. in a poetic sense where literal truth was either obscured or it wasn't actually that important. There was a deep... uh, I shouldn't say a deeper truth but a different truth or different truths that interested me Mm. and it made life very complicated I think early on in my career for people who might be interested in the work but didn't know how to place me or contextualize me and I got put into documentary shows Mm, mm. because there was nowhere else to put me. (laughs) Yeah
0: but there were some of your contemporaries it's funny you you mentioned Hebden Bridge and I, when I was you know kind of looking back at your bio um read that you know you went to Manchester Poly and then there was Hebden Bridge and I was thinking this sounds very familiar you know sort of uh obviously one thinks of Martin Parr because that was also some places that that one um associates with with Martin and so maybe you could fi- fill us in a little bit who were your your contemporaries at manchester and and was the Hebdon bridge thing just a coincidence that you ended up there as well and that martin also was there and i don't know who, god knows who else also i think maybe even daniel meadows was there at hebdom bridge
1: yes of course very happy to elaborate on Please that Please do, topic. Yeah. yeah so my first wife claire and i had moved to holland as i said immediately we graduated from manchester and at manchester um, Martin Parr um, was entering the third year when I entered the first year so Martin was two years ahead of me mm. and in his year or possibly just a year ahead of him had been Brian Griffin
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and in the year below Martin and therefore just above me were people like Charlie Meacham who you may or may not have heard of mm-hmm. who was um, a landscape photographer and might still be I, I understand he still lives in that area right? but um So my wife and I, we came back and we'd saved up quite a lot of money because uh, we got paid extraordinarily well for doing really quite mundane jobs because the Dutch government was extremely socialist at the time. And so, for example, I washed dishes in a hospital kitchen in Utrecht but I earned about 75, 80% of what a fully qualified doctor earned. No way. Yes, wow. I did.
0: that's extraordinary. Um,
1: because the Dutch government, because it was <coughs> so left-wing, it felt that people who did dirty jobs should be handsomely mm, rewarded. rewarded. Yeah, And so, you know, basically for two years, Claire and I, like every six weeks, we'd go and spend three or four days in another European capital. And um, I remember uh, at one point... Uh, I went out or we went out and we spent a thousand quid on a hi-fi turntable, two speakers and an amp and and our bank balance barely wrecked, barely, <laughs> it hardly registered That's it.
0: extraordinary. And that was in the seventies.
1: That, that, that was, yeah, that was from 76 to 79. Right, right. Yeah. So that was an extraordinary amount of money to spend on something like that at that <laughs> stage. <laughs> well, it was. I mean, it would yeah, I don't know what it would be now. Five, six, seven, eight thousand quid. Wow. And it, it hardly registered. And... So we came back, wanting to buy a house uh, for cash because we were both artists. We didn't want a mortgage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, it's almost like childlike simplicity in in you know aspiration and and in terms of practicality. And before we came back in '79, we were bit, very keen cyclists. We'd bought you know lovely expensive Japanese Koga Mayata sort of um, touring bikes and you know Holland's a great country for cycling and so on Mm. and we'd heard that um, in Holland we'd heard that in the Tyne Valley around Hexham that there were sort of old shepherd's cottages going for like four grand or five grand or whatever it was and so we decided to when we got back to cycle from Cardiff which is where I come from right up through North Wales where I had family Anglesey and then right up to Hexham which we did. But when we got to Hexham, we found out the Tyne Valley Motorway had been built in the intervening period and prices of properties around Hexham had rocketed right. because of their access, direct, quick access to Newcastle. So we cycled back down. We'd stopped at Hebden Bridge en route, on the way up, and Martin Parr and a painter called Ray Elliott, I think, and his girlfriend called Jenny bevan if i recall correctly had set up something called the albert street workshop and which was uh, you know it was a, an idea for them to make work support each other and show work because it was uh, it was a gallery and um, and you know sort of i guess there was a kiln in the back and a potting wheel and so on and maybe maybe martin had a dark room there mm. um and so I knew Martin from Manchester, and you know we'd had some very interesting conversations. And um, so we cycled back down to Hebden Bridge because we realised, we realised having gone up through it, you could buy a house for four or five grand. Right. right. And so we bought a house in Hebden Bridge. Amazing. And um, and I spent uh, two years, the no, one year building two rooms. In the top of the house, one was a bedroom so we could see the stars through the skylight, and the room next to it was a dark room, and it was a serious dark room, but I'd made a big mistake. I'd built a black and white dark room importing fans, you know, from America to take the fumes up through the roof and so on. Then I spent a year trying to photograph in black and white zone system which I taught myself at, at college. Um, Ansel Adams' own system, which I'm sure you're aware of. Mm. Very serious commitment, something like that, to the craft of photography and the, and the vision of it. And then I discovered after a year in Hebden Bridge that I was, think- I was seeing in colour. Mm. So I'd made a huge mistake. That was the point when my marriage to Claire broke down and I moved back into Manchester and started renting a house in a, in a house in Withington, mm. which was a great... Experience.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you remember, kind of specifically, the moment when, or the the stage at which you you decided to shoot in colour, and and you know, was that problematic still at that point in the sense that it wasn't thought of, you know, in a serious way?
1: Yeah, it. You know, it. um, Other other people you've interviewed have spoken about the situation in this country for photographers who had become interested in shooting in colour for a gallery environment it's, it's important to say that because in the commercial world in this country as across the world commercial photographers have been shooting in colour and very often having let's say advertising photographers and having dye transfers made and or shooting 108 tranny mm. transparencies for year for decades and um, with great uh, you know success a technical success if you like and and commercial success But for a gallery environment in this country, it was very unusual to be shooting colour. And um, people like Paul Graham had already begun to exhibit colour, I think, in 79, Mm. 80, around then. Um, I began to shoot colour immediately. I arrived in Manchester in uh, 81, and I had my first show of colour photographs, as I recall, at York Impressions Gallery First solo show in eighty two, so I guess kind of early on. Mm. Martin Parr wasn't even shooting color at this point, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so
0: you are definitely one of the sort of uh, very early kind of cohort of, of well color f- people. It
1: felt it felt pretty early. I, what I can tell you is that at one point, about eighty five, there was a meeting at the Kendall Art Center in, I think it's well in Kendall, uh, in the Lake District and nearly everybody who was working for a gallery environment in black and white and colour came to this um, meeting. Paul Graham was there too and showed some pictures I I haven't seen since, actually, of churchgoers. And possibly, I I don't know whether they were in Northern Ireland or um, over here. Uh, Martin Parr was the only person I think was not there of the people working for gallery environments. Mm. I would say of the 35... Approximately people there, there were about six or seven shooting colour in Britain mm. b- being represented. And um, that gives you an idea of how early, you know, within the whole history of shooting colour for British photographers um, we were. Mm-hmm.
0: You did a bit of travelling. You you went, um, I think, was it the Sahara Desert that you uh, visited? You certainly mm. went to Algeria and places like that. and I, mm-hmm. And... and you know you had a, a sort of epiphany of sorts um when you were un- quite seriously unwell i think in in hospital can you can yeah. you recount that um little uh story for me because i'd love to yeah. hear you t- talk about it
1: yeah so um i was still a student at manchester poly on the photography course um and i was about to enter my third year and uh i think what actually happened was I might have been towards the end of the second year and I travelled to, I wa- I was a, I'd been photographing in landscape and I, want, I thought, you know, why not be really ambitious? Let's go to the Sahara, let's, let's really go, go big on landscape <laughs> photography. Yeah. So I had a, a, a friend uh, called Richard, um, Richard Parks I think he was called, who was on the course with me, another photographer, who had been to Africa. And he said, "Look, why don't we go together?" I said, "Sure." because he said, "It's a pretty big it's a pretty big experience. It might be helpful for you to have somebody with you mm-hmm. who's been already." He was a member of, of a faith called the Baha'is, and he was married to somebody whose father was very high up in the Baha'i faith, and somebody who was in Africa, in Ghana actually proselytizing and spreading the faith. Anyway, we flew to the Canary Islands. Um, and then we flew to in a very small ten-seater plane to the edge of the Spanish Sahara, what was then called the Spanish Sahara. Mm. But the Spanish, um, they, I think it was the Polisario, were actually fighting Morocco. Morocco wanted to take the territory, and um, I think it is now called Morocco, part of Morocco. Mm. But we travelled uh, extensively um, into the desert, into the Sahara on an extraordinary train. It's very famous. The train is two and a half miles long and it goes deep into um, Mauritania to iron ore mines. So the wagons travel empty from the coast. Uh, It takes several days. Uh, There are like three engines pulling and two pushing at the back because the train is so long. (laughs) And um, people hitch rides at the bottom of these empty iron ore wagons. The wagons have no suspension um, when they're going back, when they're empty, because they, they're supposed to be carrying, you know, 20 tons of ore. Mm. And uh, the journey is rigorous, to say the least. Anyway, um, then we travelled over land, having gone deep into Mauritania, overland with Tuaregs and their, you know, four-by-fours, down to Senegal, uh, Gambia, and then all the way down to Ghana. So this took, uh, this took maybe six weeks, something like that. We were, you know, didn't have much money, always traveling over land, eating sardines and ran raisins, <laughs> um, because the food very often was you know in maybe a little bit tricky and unpredictable in in restaurants and so on. And then we got down to Ghana, um Accra, where um, my friend's father-in-law was um, spreading the Baha'i faith. We stayed with him for a while. And then we decided to travel alone. Um, I decided to start heading to, towards Algiers across the Sahara alone. Uh, and when I think about it now, given how little I knew about the complexities, it was it was um, it was a youthful thing to think I could do alone mm. overland. Anyway, sort of, I became quite ill in uh, Niger, which is the next country up from Ghana and I developed dysentery and hepatitis at the same time, but I had no idea. I had no idea what was going on. I began to hallucinate. I began to lose weight rapidly. And the long and short of it is that, um, because I've been travelling on top of one of the local lorries, you may have seen the way that people travel very often in in that part of Africa. Mm. Could be 20, 30 people all climb right up on top of, you know, a tall, heavily laden lorry, Traveling over laterite roads, uneven roads... ...they're not not really roads at all... ...they're just roadways, if you like, or routes... ...and I guess I reached a point where... um, ...the people I was travelling with realised that I was so ill... ...that the lorry stopped at a place... ...where they tried to flag down another lorry... ...that was travelling, that may take me to um, a hospital... And in fact, what happened was a, a German uh, transit van full of, if you like, Saharan tourists, German tourists, stopped and took me another couple of hundred kilometres further north. The plan was to try to get me to southern Algeria, to um, Insula, to uh, to Tamanrasset, I think it was, to the hospital there that was considered to have the, the appropriate facilities to help me. The transit van broke down. Um, because you know it's a pretty harsh environment and we are going back quite a long time when vehicles perhaps were less reliable we're not talking about fuel injection talking about carburettors talking about sand in the air and all the rest of it and uh, the german driver and tour guide of that transit van after about 48 hours managed to flag down an algerian refrigerated lorry with with a driver uh, if you like uh, a navigator and a middle seat that was free, and the only reason that I survived was because these two Algerian lorry drivers um, put me in the middle seat and drove another four hundred kilometers approximately further north to Tamanrasset to the to the hospital and i 've got a very distinct memory of of them dropping me off. But I was so weak, I was crawling into the hospital by myself, pulling my rucksack behind me. And they put me on a drip immediately, and the documentation that I was given when I left uh, three weeks later um, showed that I weighed 40 kilos and I was, I was bright yellow. Mm. So I was on a drip for three weeks. Um, and um, I guess it was about three weeks. I'm pretty sure it was about three weeks uh, later there were uh, algerian nurses and french doctors because of course french is spoken in algeria and one day the nurse said to came to me and said peter if you feel strong enough um i can take you to to the courtyard to see the flowers and i and she, i said yes that would be great she said i'll help you because obviously you're not strong enough and so it took a while it took something like 5 8 minutes um, to go down these different corridors this left, right, left, right and, and slowly the corridors are getting brighter, no windows it's the, it's the Sahara, you don't want windows mm. and you want quite thick walls actually um, so finally we're, we stand in a doorway and I'm looking uh, at this blinding Saharan sunlight and um, a and bunch of Bougainvillea trees six or seven Bougainvillea trees in the courtyard of the hospital And what I experienced, and you have to understand that um, I'd I'd been really delirious before I'd gone into hospital. I mean, I'd seen seen green giants racing across the desert, pushing ladders with wheels on the bottom of them, who were so tall I couldn't see their heads, only up to the shoulders as they ran past. Mm. Wild stuff. And at that moment in the doorway, every single flower was a crucible, in which an eternal struggle was taking place between the impossible beauty of the world and its irrefutable fact. And as I've said elsewhere, there was no way at that moment I could articulate that experience, but I understood it intuitively at at a most fundamental level as an artist. uh, It took many, many years of of pondering and of time passing before I could express it in that way, mm. but I think everything that I, I've, I've been trying to to discuss and allude to with the camera since, one way or another, has had that principal preoccupation at the centre of it. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for recounting that. I mean, I mean, I was gonna, I suppose, ask you what your overriding preoccupations have been throughout your whole career with all the projects that that you've done it's very eclectic but um but there seems to be some kind of underpinning stuff you know that you that you're concerned with and so that really was an extraordinarily important uh, moment for you in terms of your kind mm. of artistic uh life really
1: well it was it was uh it was groundbreaking for me and it's been central to my whole. in a way it's what helped me decide to become a photographer Mm. and stay a photographer and dedicate my whole life to to working with the medium of color yeah because color was so central to that vision and it was a vision i mean it was like a a spiritual vision
0: yeah i was reading uh, it said i think probably on your wikipedia page that you know you're interested in j- this was a, a, a literal journey but you're interested in in, in journeys of all sorts literal mm. literary and mm. and psychological mm. alongside a sustained and almost obsessive inquiry into the matter and materials of the everyday that was the, that was the quote i was uh, mm. looking for you mm. sort of deal with um these kind of found still lives i suppose um, yeah, maybe you could talk about that. A little bit. Yeah,
1: of course. Well, I suppose it's worth mentioning here, going and going right back to my school days, um, to when I was a schoolboy at Cardiff High School for Boys in Cardiff, and um, I was fifteen, and it was customary for at the end of the school year, the headmaster to generally take us all into invite us all into the assembly hall. And show us something interesting, and it was 1968. I'm 15, and this year, so it's like July before we, or June before we split up for the summer, last day of of, of the of the uh, academic year, and he said, uh, you know, boys, I want you to come into all report to the assembly hall at a certain time. I want to show you something special, so we all troop in, whole school, and uh, so there's you know there's like this flickery screen in black and white up on a, it's a big screen you know it's for there's like 150 of us in there or 200 boys um and this extraordinary film starts playing and you know that it's like it's it looks like 16 mil but it might have been 35 mil but all around the edge was sort of you kind of slightly like hairs sticking out and stuff mm-hmm. which is kind of i suppose it wasn't a very precise edge to the frame mm. as i think was often the case in those days And what happened was um, it started to run and you immediately realised that you're looking down on two people on a picnic rug. And um, then the camera... So the camera was looking vertically down and then suddenly it shot up. Let's say it started off at two metres, then it shot up to 20 metres, which immediately gave you, in a jump, in a single jump, not a pan... Uh, as I recall, anyway. Maybe it was a pan, but it was a jump, certainly, and sudden. And then you realise, oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a couple having a picnic. Um, And then, very suddenly, moments later, it went up to 200 times 10. Mm. And what we were being shown was the extraordinary and now really famous film by Charles and Raheem's called Powers of Ten. And um, as the title suggests, that the camera... Jumps up ten times the distance every time it makes a move. so relatively soon, you realize this couple's having a picnic on the edge of lake I think it's Lake Huron, is it, uh, in Chicago? And then quite quickly after that, you know you're looking at Earth, the whole the whole of the planet, but the camera keeps going, ten times the distance over and over again. So after about seven and a half minutes or something. Um, You reached the edge of the imagined universe. Mm. What I didn't know at the time was that Charles and Ray Eames had big pals, close friends who worked for IBM in California. And they had access to IBM's computers at that time. And obviously, we are talking about a very early stage Mm. in the development of generally understood computing.
0: Yeah, they probably had a. Their computers probably took up an entire room. You know, the size oh, of an entire room. Oh, they room, would have. They
1: would have absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've seen images of the IBM's computers from that time. It's not just a room; it's like an air, a practically an aircraft. Right, thing, right, yeah. Vast, you know, arrays of of computing, um, computing power. Anyway, you've reached the edge of the imagined universe after about s- seven and a half minutes. Oh, I forget the, ex- the exact time. It's not not important. And then the camera suddenly starts coming back a tenth of the distance each time until after another minute or 90 seconds, because cam- it speeded up the return journey, the camera brings you back to where you began. And then it starts going, it, it, it goes right down to the skin on the back of the hand mm. of one of the picnickers. And it just stops there for a moment and then it keeps going. Down, down. A tenth the distance. A tenth, the, tenth of the magnification, or ten times the magnification, until finally, at the end of the film, which you're watching as a nine, as a fifteen-year-old schoolboy, you get inside. You're shown the inside of an atom, with the protons, the electrons, the neutrons spinning. And one one thing you've discovered is the amount of space that there is inside an atom. Mm. But the overwhelming experience for a schoolboy at 15 was this, that there is no hierarchical relationship between big things and small things. It doesn't matter how big something is, it's made up of the most unimaginably small components. And inside those components is space. And one of the preoccupations I've had all through my career is trying to understand not only what things are made of and how they how they can exist and what does it mean that they exist, but also reflecting on, the, if you like, the Big Bang. And the idea, because in that film you travel through galaxies, mm. solar systems and one of the things that one of the ideas that came out of that for me that's been so important is thinking about the big bang an, an, an unimaginably dense body of matter that at a certain moment explodes in ways that quite defy my comprehension but lead to the planets the the different galaxies the solar systems And Earth itself, at that point, simply being an uneven mass of rock and and gas, which then, over eons, coalesces into what we we know as Earth. And when I look around, all through my life, at what I see around me on Earth, and I reflect on the fact that this was originally just an uneven rock, surrounded by gas, then I'm absolutely awestruck by the almost incomprehensible beauty and strangeness of everything that is around us. And that goes to the very heart again of what I've spent 40 years already Mm. trying to investigate, trying to communicate my excitement and my sense of the strangeness of the world around us, mm. given that notion of our history.
0: Yeah, that's quite a broad, that's a hell of a palette, you know that you can that you can employ there because you, you're sort of. The, it's, it also occurred to me that's a, a wonderfully um, inspired little teaching moment that your head your head teacher had right. at, that, at that to show you of all Amazing. the things that he, he picked that. And clearly, or well, at least for you, if not for, I'm sure for some of the other boys as well, but it stuck with you. And then, but it took a while for you to really start exploring that very specifically. I mean, you did the um, Deep Blue project, you did materials. This wasn't until I think the early 2000s that you started to look at those things very specifically in terms of an, ex- an exploration of technology and um, the way that that kind of, you know which reflective of that those themes
1: well that's true but i would add this um if you think about even early fairly almost primitive work that i made like 12 day journey for example yeah. which which is you know one has to accept it's a conceptual idea but it's about as simple as it gets mm-hmm. i take 12 days out of my regular my regular life i go down to to land's end knowing I'm going to travel for 12 days and 12 nights or photograph at least at any point during the day or night for 12 days, never knowing where I'm going to be the next, end up the next day. I don't have much money, I'm hitching, I'm walking, I'm getting local buses, whatever. But even those images, um, I would propose to you, I offer to you to reflect on them in ways which allow you to Imagine I'm quite preoccupied with the nature of stuff, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's quite a reasonable position for me to hold, and therefore already begins to show a direction for my fundamental interests in working with the medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that
0: phrase, the nature of stuff is it's, it's so down to earth, you know, it's such a, a simple way to put it, but um, it does kind of pretty much nail it. Yeah, because otherwise one can start to get quite, you know, uh, into some quite academic uh, language in trying to analyse these things, and I always I always come back with these with these chats that I have with people like you and photographers like you who you know find of thinking very deeply about things that I'm pretty simple, Peter. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I don't you know, really accept that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I I try and I try and kind of bring things back down to to what I can understand. I mean, I was fascinated by your mathematics book. And um, I don't know when I I suppose mathematics is a sort of extension of what we're talking about. And I don't know when you started becoming interested in that, but I was trying to get my head around some of it. And um, I found I found it a fascinating thing that you want to explore such a sort of, you know, I suppose, an abstract idea in a way. Um, I don't know if mathematics is an abstract idea. It is to me because I don't really I understand a lot of it. But it's, mm. um, to explore it through photography is a very interesting decision. Um, could you talk mm. about the sort of origins of that? Yes,
1: I, I will, happily. Well, first of all, it might be useful for you to know that um, at, at school, at A-level, I did mathematics and physics mm. and chemistry. Um, and I, in fact, I did advanced maths um, a year early because I loved it so much. I absolutely adored mathematics. I wasn't very good at at chemistry, but uh, physics I loved too, really profoundly. And in a way, um, you know, those... uh, Maybe I even chose those subjects after seeing the Charles and Ray Mm. Eames film uh, at the age of 15. And... Um, I suppose I've always had this sort of memory uh, of my love of mathematics. And I've always thought of mathematics as exquisitely beautiful and profound, properly profound. And then, I suppose it must have been, I don't know, five, eight, nine, ten years ago, I came across... I was reading about um, mathematics, and I came across an extraordinary book... <clears throat> by a professor of, of applied maths and physics at MIT in the states, called Max Tegmark, originally from Sweden, I think, and but uh, you know he'd moved to America uh, relatively young, either with his parents or to study. And <clears throat> he had apparently outraged a lot of his contemporaries in his world twenty years earlier, twenty-five years earlier by saying, he's a really, really brilliant, now understood to be really, really brilliant uh, applied mathematician. And he'd outraged a lot of his contemporaries by saying, uh, and his position now is widely respected. But then, and I'm always interested in people, if you like, who propose a new radical view of almost anything, which then, after generating... Outrage mm. subsequently becomes embraced.
2: Mm.
1: Well,
0: Galileo springs to mind.
1: Well, of course. Sort of, yeah. Yes, absolutely right. And, you know, the, 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 the examples are legion in every field of life. Mm. In his case, what had upset so many of his contemporaries was this that he said, I'm not interested in the idea that we've developed mathematics as a powerful tool in order to understand the universe. What I'm interested in is the idea that the universe. And therefore, by implication, our world is a physical expression of mathematics. And therefore, I see myself as an archaeologist uncovering some, if you like, such a profound truth that we can't even pretend that we've invented it. We've discovered it Mm. because the universe is a physical expression and we are too, inevitably and automatically, of mathematics itself mm. and that idea i just found overwhelming yeah. actually
0: it, yeah it, it it's an idea that is both simple and profound at the same time in a way
1: i find it difficult to see the simple side of it
0: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well it's about if humanity was removed from the equation would mathematics still exist, you know,
1: in a way? Is that really what it's kind well, of asking? Well, I, I, I understand, of course, what you're driving at. If the tree falls in the forest yeah. and no one hears <clears throat> it, did it fall? Well, I think we can accept actually that it did. Yeah, yeah. And I would just, you know, continue the parallel. Yeah. And I would suggest that perhaps, yes, mathematics would. If it's the fundamental principle at the centre of why things exist, it would.
0: mm mm-hmm. But then we come to the more problematic um, question of how do you then do a photography project aimed at exploring these kind of quite uh,
1: difficult-to-grasp to, to um, ideas? Well, you see, this is where it gets very interesting in terms of thinking about the relationship between documentary photography and art. One of the things that artists are, are never necessarily particularly preoccupied at all is with trying to propose if you like an explanation but to propose the highest possible quality questions and it seems that photographers very often, especially some documentary photographers get very very absorbed by the idea that they have to explain something Mm. they have to give some if you like, manifestation which can be interpreted as an explanation for some aspect of life around them. Now, my my feeling is that the very best documentary photographers actually manage to escape that trap. Mm. And they make, they bring work into the world which not only asks the highest possible quality questions and never for a moment offers answers but actually transcends if you like um the fundamental restrictions that are inherent in trying to portray the world as it's seen and they manage to suggest that things are not only not the way they appear to be but they are fundamentally different to the way they appear to be in the most interesting ways yeah but this is what artists do all the time the the best artists Mm with the, with the proviso that not all painters are artists only some painters are artists and therefore what i'm alluding to is some special quality that art which is the best achievement the highest achievement in the cre- in, in creative areas is capable of mm. and it makes it very special
2: mm.
0: And you're also exploring at the same time the limitations of photography as a medium and, and the things that photography does well and the things that photography does not do well. Yes. That um, I don't know, can't remember quite what the quote is, but it, uh, I don't, isn't it something about photography can, you know, shows everything but explains nothing or something along those lines. I can't remember who said that no
1: it's uh, it's only familiar but i can't remember it yeah either.
0: but it also brings to mind i mean <clears> there's a you you actually even put this quote on your uh, instagram um page but the, you, know, you know i think it is a winogrand quote there's nothing so mysterious as a fact clearly stated that's kind of we're, what we're talking about here in a way
1: my understanding of the winogrand quote is and i could have this of course i could have this wrong is that i photograph things in order to see what they look like yeah, when they're photographed. Right. And in a way, yes, um, the opposite of the the kind of yeah, the kind of inverse of the of
0: the cartier bresson uh, decisive moment uh, philosophy, really in a way i see it, I see it that way in a way as the kind of uh, yeah. the kind of uh, a- antidote to that
1: I think for me, the Winograd quote um, and position is is far more interesting mm. than the cartier bresson one mm. um, and there is a relationship you 're right there is a relationship between um, the winograd quote and what I'm trying to allude to but I think there is a subtle difference and that is that I'm also I'm not only interested in seeing what things look like when they're photographed um, but I'm really interested in something that's actually to do with language and um, maybe even neuroscience and it's, it's really this issue of let's say if you say banana a hundred times it ends up meaning nothing, or it ends up meaning anything but what we understand a banana to be.
3: Mm.
1: Because there's something that happens through the repetition. And in a way, if you say, Oh, look, there's a car. For me, this is a really complex thing. It's really profound because there's a car. What does that actually mean? Yes, there's an object in the shape of a car. But there's so much more that you're pointing a finger at, if you're pointing a finger at the car. And it's got everything to do with what different people see. Two people can stand on the edge of a cliff and they can watch the clouds scudding past. But they might be actually seeing entirely different things. Or... If we imagine their point of view being a circle of apprehension, the circles actually overlap at some point, and that overlapped area is where they could turn to each other minutes later after watching the clouds, and they could say, this is what that experience meant to me, and the other person would understand what they were saying. Mm. But then there's that whole other area that hasn't been overlapped that's unique to their own experience. They both were looking at the same scene. But they there was a commonality, a partial commonality to their experience, and then there was the other aspect which was entirely unique to them. Mm. And this is something that goes to the very heart of what interests me in this idea that a fact plainly stated is anything but straightforward. Mm. Yeah, as you were talking about that, it
0: br- brings to mind your blue buckets, you know, that as as an example of something that mm. one would not normally think of as being uh, worthy of a photograph. And yet, you know, you've really sort of specialised in a way in, the, in in exploring those everyday things, as have other photographers, of course. Of course. What was, you know, what strikes you as, as fascinating about something
1: like two blue buckets? Mm. For me, one of the most exciting things about um, that that image and uh, and that's why uh, it became the title of a, of my first book because it was so important to me um, was this that one of the defining qualities of the the medium of photography of course is that uh, outside of manipulation in photoshop and so on is that every point of information in the subject is democratically. Delineated and represented in the f- in the image in the photograph, mm. and so with a with a photograph like the two blue buckets, um, if one was in a, in a hurry and one saw that photograph, one might just say, "Okay, it's two blue buckets." But if you've got time and you spend uh, time looking at that photograph, then the way that photography does that thing I just mentioned makes it very clear that the two buckets are really different. They're different in design, they're different in detail, they're different in colour. And I think that that makes that photograph really exemplary for me in terms of elucidating and presenting the key profound quality, unique quality that photography has. Mm. I
0: probably should have kind of brought this up earlier in the chat but i asked you um as i now do for the most part with with guests in preparation about what you might you know be interested to talk about and and i wanted to raise this because i found this fascinating this is what you said one of the territories within art and photography practice which interests me greatly is the relationship between work which confirms the artist or photographer's talent and competence and that which goes a step qualitatively further to potentially change the way people think about what it is to be alive. Now, I I could interpret that in my own way, but I just thought I'd just let you, um, you know, explain yourself. Really, you know, what you mean by that, and
1: what what you find interesting about that. I'm very happy to. Um, can I just reach over for a book underneath your things there? Yeah, I'd like to quote from that the new color photography. Yes, yes, please.
0: By Sally
1: Euclair Yes. So. The New Colour Photography um, by Sally O'Claire came out, uh, I think it came out in the States in 81, and then in the UK, maybe a a different edition or the second edition. I think it really was popular because it's an extraordinary um, publication of colour photography. Uh, I think we got it in 82 in the UK, and people like Martin Parr Graham Jem Southam my contemporaries we all jumped on this publication it was such an extraordinary survey with such uh, an, an articulate and lucid uh, text by Sally O'Claire and she was the um, she was the editor who chose the works as well mostly american photographers i don't know 40 50 photographers but uh, also a couple of european ones um And uh, there was a section, inevitably, on William Eggleston's work which really caught my imagination. And um, the way she spoke about William Eggleston's work was one of the reasons that, not only um, because it opened up meaning for me in the work, but it was one of the reasons I decided, because it, it hit me with such force that I decided I wanted to go and spend time with William Eggleston which you may know I did do. Mm. But just to come back to your question, um, I'm going to just read you a very short section where she's speaking about... um, Well, I'll start here now. Mm. Colour is always an expressive force in Eggleston's work, but in many photographs he escalates its impact. Expressionist painters often use colour aggressively, but usually distort every other phase of representation as well. Eggleston consistently retains descriptive legibility and cohesion. His sense of his own purpose differs little from that elucidated for Southern fiction writers by Flannery O'Connor. And this this is the section I really want to emphasize. To know how far, and substitute she for he, he can distort without destroying And in order not to destroy, he will have to descend far enough into himself to reach those underground springs that give life to his work. This descent into himself will, at the same time, be a descent into his region. It will be a descent through the darkness of the familiar into a world where, like the blind man cured in the Gospels, he sees men as if they were trees walking this is the beginning of vision and i feel it as a vision in the south we must at least try to understand if we want to participate in the continuation of a vital southern literature now i think that really goes to the very heart of what great artists profound artists do but to descend into your own darkness is something that not everybody wants to do, is capable of doing, finds it interesting enough to do. But I think all serious artists, in any medium, writing, painting, filmmaking, sculpture, you name it, photography, find a way to do that. And in fact, um, such a force that hit me with, not only did I introduce myself to William Eggleston at his first V&A opening and then subsequently the following year go and live with him for seven weeks but uh, later on in a series of photographs that I made which I began to show um, in 189 I think big triptychs um, or triptychs, they were big images, I think maybe the title of them was just triptychs mm-hmm. uh, that I began to show with Maureen Paley at Interim Art there's a photograph of a of a caver descending on a rope and um, into the into the darkness and um that was a very important picture for me that was inspired by that passage. Mm. But this is what I think really goes to the very heart of how great work is made. And there are enormous risks um and dangers, really profound dangers even to the sanity of um, the people, the creative people that we might be uh, considering. I don't know whether that helps you understand my position on this.
0: I think it will. I'll probably have to listen back and and try and really think it through because I think there's a lot there and I think uh, it might be something that that needs to be pondered upon a little bit, but thank you so much for for raising that. I think people will f- will take what they what they will from it, and I think mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Um, it also makes me think people are always talking about Flannery O'Connor. I must read some Flannery O'Connor. I don't know if you've ever read any yourself. Th- that whole s- Southern Gothic uh, tradition, and uh, and I don't know whether is it Sally Eclair. Is she a Southerner herself? Does she sound like she was? talking as though, you know, in the weeds. Do you know,
1: I, I did meet her in New York, but I, I didn't find out mm, um, whether mm. she was she was living in New Cause York at
0: the time. Because obviously, you know, Evereston <clears throat> is, is synonymous with that part of, of the States. I have to ask you a little bit about what that experience was like, I suppose, I meant to, and I'm glad you sort of introduced him into the conversation. Yeah, you were obviously inspired enough to go and find him. And, and what did you... I guess, take away from the experience?
1: Yeah, I have been asked that, obviously, a lot of, a lot of times, and um, I suppose my answer just often feels a bit, a bit sort of simplistic, to even to me, as well as to others. But the real truth of it is that, um, you know, Bill was extraordinarily gracious mm. and welcoming. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, you know, people here had told me who knew I wanted to go and spend time with him before I introduced myself to him at the V&A opening? That it was impossible. They said, "Peter, you must be crazy. That's not going to happen." But of course, in life, very often, if you try to do something that people said you can't do, you find out well, you can, and uh, sometimes it just takes. I mean, it was a terrifying prospect for me. Uh, you know, this is night. This is like September '83. It was only one year earlier I'd had my first show. Um, and to go up to William Eggleston and say, and introduce myself and say, you know, um, Mr. Eggleston, I'm, I'm working in colour and I think your work is incredible. Can I come and stay with you um, and, and hang out? And, you know, he said, yeah, get in touch with me. Come and see me in, on Cheney Walk at, you know, my friend's house tomorrow. His friend's house was owned by the head of BP Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which I did and we fixed it up and I went to America uh, the following year in July, beginning of July and I immediately felt it was an extraordinary, Memphis of course extraordinarily strange place but we hung out and you know I have to say that I don't think that I was a very easy person to be with because it's so strange to try and explain given that I'd got so little experience of doing anything interesting I was just enormously um impressed with Eggleston's work. I mean moved, inspired, excited, um intimidated. And when I was with him, I felt I was I was very intense. I don't think I was great company, to be frank. <laughs> right. And he had another young photographer staying with him at the time as well. Um somebody called Volker Heinz from Berlin who I think might have been instrumental in inviting uh, Eggleston over to make some work mm. for something uh, called the Werkstatt.
0: Yeah, I've, uh, I've talked
1: to Paul yes, a
0: little bit about that, yeah. I,
1: I understand that you did. Um, and um, Volker had a different kind of easy relationship. I, well, It looked easier to me with Bill than I did. But, you know, we went we went driving we traveled down we spent time in motels and in you know mississippi which was really something mm. and uh, but the, i have to say and i've said before but i'll say it again i'd already traveled in africa and i found the deep south weirder by far <laughs> than africa <laughs> yeah. to me coming from the uk yeah. and there were many many reasons for it but culturally it was extraordinarily different And it didn't, I thought that I was going to stay in America. Mm. Um, I'd lived in New York in 1974 for the whole summer and worked in New York in a photography bookshop Mm. called the the Laurel Book Centre, which is on 6th Avenue and 32nd Street. And my eyes had been entirely opened in an extraordinary way to the range of photography that people were busy with and had been Mm. involved with because the uk was a backwater in in, in many respects yeah. at that time so that was a hugely uh <clears throat>
0: sort of influential experience working in that budget. amazing
1: absolutely amazing yeah uh and i was given a job dusting the books mm. um because there was no job but i was broke and i you know my return flight was three months later and uh, it was a Welsh, a Welsh woman who was the manager of the bookshop, really? who recognised something in my accent um, of being slightly from Wales, and she said, "Peter, you know, we haven't really got a job here, but look, just start coming in five days a week <laughs> and dust the books, and we'll give you seventy dollars a week or something yeah. like that." Well, but, that's a great.
0: I mean, I'd, I'd have, I'd have snapped that up because what a great opportunity to to just
1: it was immerse yourself. Absolutely incredible.
0: Also, New York in the seventies must have been was like notoriously, you know, kind of talk about Gotham. You know, it was it was
1: it was really it was rough, City, rough, and, it was rough, and scary. It, yeah, and I I lived right at the top uh, in the what were called the cloisters, right yeah. at the top of Manhattan. Uh, I've been up there, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and going through Harlem every day, and you know all the rest of it, um, and uh, and all the Puerto Rican, you mm. know, families up. A lot of Port- Puerto Rican families up uh, around the cloisters on the weekends. I used to wander around. It mm. was just incredible. Yeah. Hot as hell.
2: Mm.
1: And the music coming out of, you know, out of apartments and out of car stereos was absolutely deafening. It was mm. extraordinary. Really mm. amazing. Incredible time.
0: And what I love about the Ag- the Eggleston uh, story really is there's so much about it. I mean, the, the fact that you were the one who was... And you're you're you know kind of admitting openly that you were the one who was was difficult. You think that like maybe he would be a, 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 you know a difficult character, but it's lovely to hear you know him that you you saying that he was gracious and he and, was. And, and and um. But the fact that you know there's a kind of who dares wins uh, sort of element to that because as you say you were f- scared to do it but you did and it, you know in, in the face of other people saying of course that isn't going to happen. So I love I love those kind of stories. You know I love those kind of. Uh, those moments um those inflection points where i don't know i just think there's a lot to be taken from that kind of that kind mm. of that kind of thing but, but you
1: know. I, I didn't actually answer your question properly no I, pro- possibly I, what not. did i what did i take from it yeah. and, uh, and I, i'm happy to say except i'm it's almost embarrassing to say that i learned nothing about photography mm. it was wonderful to look through you know uh, bill's 10 by 8s you know by the hundred and in boxes, like Mark Hoban did, perhaps uh, around that time or a little bit later when he was choosing works to publish um, for, with, with, with Aperture and so on. Um, but what I did take away from it was something that was truly profound. If I try and say, how, how, was, how was a young, sort of 30, 30 year old, 31 year old British photographer working in colour? At a time in the UK when colour was barely recognised, was only really barely recognised, how was I supposed to understand that I could have a whole career working as a photographer in colour? There were plenty of careers to be inspired by uh, around me in this country by photographers who'd worked for 30, 40 years in black and white,
3: Mm.
1: but not colour. And so what I realised, and I guess perhaps it was what I hoped to discover by going to spend time with with Bill was that through his example, I could see it was possible to to commit the whole of my life to working with colour as a photographer. And to come back with that... Way, really more, something.
0: Yeah, way more important than anything you might have learned about photography per se you're really learning mm. it's kind of more like life uh lessons in a sense and uh a big life lesson. yeah and christian patterson who's another photographer i've spoken to also was you know in, in a way sort of did the same thing you did um well, we're but we're friends oh you are okay great so yeah, yeah there you go but i remember christian saying you know they, they, they didn't really talk about photography no you know that wasn't really the point
1: it wasn't the point at all you know
0: and i can i can see that you know i'd, I'd want to you know yeah he's he's a he's a fascinating character there are so many other things you could uh yeah chat with him about yeah and did and did yeah i'm sure yeah well he plays piano doesn't he mm-hmm. plays a bit of piano he's i mean he's uh, absolutely you know fascinating in, he's in a very not,
1: very fine piano player
0: yeah oh, that's great mm-hmm. and so i'd, I'd want to talk to him about music i think mm. Now it's interesting you talk about career and stuff because I wanted to, to ask you about um, what um, I was referred to somewhere as a lost decade in, in in Hackney where you were you was broke and and you know part of what we concern ourselves on on the on the podcast with for very obvious reasons is is that whole thorny question and, and, and i and i guess it's you know it can be um useful and inspiring for the listeners to to know that they're uh, they're in very good company when um they're trying to figure out the simple business of paying the mortgage so i just wanted to ask you a little bit about that experience mm-hmm. and 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 you know how you sort of weathered it i suppose really
1: mm. well um they were very difficult uh very difficult years and um I was lucky enough to um, be given, in a way, a studio in Hackney by somebody called Marcus Hansen and Chris dawley Brown. Mm. They shared this studio um, just off Mare Street in Hackney, and they basically they offered it to me, even though it was being managed by Space Studios. That was kind of the way things worked. And in fact, I did the same seventeen years later to uh, Daphne Talmore. Mm. And I was very, very happy to um, to to hand it over to her because she seemed she just left the royal and and she seemed to be very um, energetic and uh, inspiring for someone who just left you know college, and it's fantastic. I've really enjoyed following her success in the years which have Mm -hmm. passed, and she's doing so great now. Um, But uh, what a lot of people don't know is that starting from sort of nineteen eighty four. Um, When I moved to Bristol, I had a show with Willie Magleston Mm. months before in February 84 at the Arnolfini, just the two of us, two person show. And um, as a consequence of realising, I mean, Paul Graham and Jem had both been working with colour in Bristol for a couple of years. And there was a sort of sympathetic atmosphere and environment in Bristol as a consequence of, of I think, people like Paul and Jem and some other people working in colour. And so I decided to, when I got back from America, realising I was a European photographer without question and feeling really strange in Ameri- in that part of America, mm. um, I decided to move to Bristol from Manchester. And... Um, one of the things that I began to do was um, because I was in touch with Martin Parr. Martin didn't know how to print, but he was—he—he was, he, he was getting—he was getting very interested in colour photography. And uh, he said, "Well, look, if you want to make some money, do you want to do you want to print for me?" I said, "Sure." So I printed for Martin Parr for twenty years, right? And I made you know a, a, quite a significant part of my annual income came from. Um, printing for Martin, mm. there were there were sales, there were print sales from time to time, not very often. There were quite a lot of bursaries. I remember getting fellowships from from Southwest Arts and and that kind of thing. You know, very useful sums of money. But it, and I printed for other people. Um, but I earned you know my living by, by printing for other photographers for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't remember when it stopped. Probably about 2004 or something
0: 2005 so yeah sometimes one has to find another way of
1: uh, paying the bills but all that time you see I was printing for Martin and other people I was thinking I was not only making my own work because I do feel I feel very good about having an unbroken exhibition history Mm. right from 1982 um, with many different bodies of work and all the time I was printing for other people, I was getting pleasure, I have to say, from doing good work. Because I love, I, I still love printing in colour. And um, I was told I was good at it. Um, I got great uh, great pleasure and joy from that. And so there was a practical as well as an aesthetic and philosophic pleasure in uh in spending all those years printing for others and knowing I was supporting the development of my own work, mm-hmm. which was absolutely and obviously critically important to me. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Well, look, I'm very mindful of your time. I want to go on and do the bonus questions for the members' podcast, so you know. Listeners, if you have enjoyed this chat with Peter, which I know you will have done, um, don't forget you can sign up. I don't normally do this this puff at the end, but you can sign up as a as a member and and, uh, get exclusive content for the members' podcast. Because we're going to go and do these bonus questions, which will be um, just for the subscribers. But it's been really extraordinarily enjoyable to to talk to you and I hope you know I feel like we've kind of been all over the place a little bit and I and I, I hope I've I've done a, a kind of reasonable job of of giving some sense of where you're coming from and thank you so much for for doing it now this this um the Pollock Krasner thing what will be the ultimate you know you know way in which that that work it, it comes to light will it is there going to be a an exhibition or a book or something or, or don't you know
1: uh, well, I suppose, just looking back over my career, there's generally been an exhibition, not always, but generally an exhibition and a publication of most of the bodies of work I've made. Uh, there are exceptions. Um, but I expect there will be for this work mm. too. Um, uh, and hopefully there will be interest in the work simply because it's um, the result of a Pollock-Krasner Foundation Award. Yeah. But, there, for example, there never was uh, a, an exhibition called Two Blue Buckets. Mm-mm. That was... Uh, a book of publication, as i 've said, that my first, but it actually was a it, it surveyed four different exhibitions and uh, material, for example, which was my first book with Gerhard steidel um, and and Michael Mack um, it never was an exhibition, right, but some of the works appeared in exhibitions and also subsequently in my Tate retrospective, uh, which we haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but
0: well that was like that was again and really significant because i think you were the f- first living photographer to have such a, a an exhibition that was a 2013 i think so that was a pretty big moment for you
1: it was a thrill to be the first photographer yes um to have a tate uh, retrospective of course wolfgang Tillmans, who's german had had a retrospective at the tape before that um but um, you know, for example, I can I can tell you about the opening night in in Saint Ives. Yeah, Tate, yeah. Tate Saint Ives. Please do. Uh, one of the one of the Tates, because all the Tates are interconnected. Mm. Um, and uh, Nick Sorota came down for the opening, so I had uh, my retrospective up, and also a fantastic show of paintings by uh, a really wonderful um, British painter um, who represented Britain at Venice at the Venice Biennale in the year I was born. Uh, in 1953 and in The Way Things Go I've forgotten, <laughs> William Scott I nearly forgot his, uh, his name okay. um, really fantastic still lives and I suppose there might have been you know, at the at the most simple level curatorially a notion of still lives then, still lives now um, but it was a really tremendous experience but Nick Saroda came down for the opening and gave a speech as he would and um, he, I was standing right next to him he'd asked me to and he said we're really proud that we can show Peter Fraser now ten years ago we couldn't have which is an extraordinary thing to say which is a very loaded and interesting thing to say something had happened which made it possible mm. and uh, of course it was a thrilling moment and it was a beautiful really beautiful show and Tate published uh, a major monograph which you may or may not have seen Um on the whole of my career with a wonderful text by David David Chandler who's mm. a great writer uh, uh, as many of us know on, on photography and yeah. photographers work yeah he is I did, I did read that yeah. oh you did well all of it I don't don't know,
0: not. I don't know if I read the whole thing. No, but, thirty thousand words. Oh, is so it? Oh, okay, right. Yeah, well, <laughs> I get. I definitely didn't. Then, but um, but no, I have not seen the book uh, itself. Of course, um, have you not? No, I mean, I saw. I'd like to. I'd love to. Yeah. yeah, but I saw. I saw. You know, um, this was all in,
1: in, by way of this preparation. I saw. I saw some of it online. Mm. I will show you before you leave. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, a, a sort of key moment, I suppose. Mm. And, um, I, sorry, I, I should let you ask a question. No,
0: I mean, I, I just feel like we should perhaps bring it to a close. And uh, I don't know if we have come to an appropriate point at which to do that. Well, um, have you got
1: a bonus question? I've got several. and um, well, I've got time if you want to. All
0: right. Well, let's stop where we are and then um, we will start again um, with the bonus questions but Peter let me just say before we do that thank you so much for
1: for chatting I've really, really enjoyed it it's been a great pleasure